toss a coin to your Witcher, O Valley of Plenty. It's the show with PJ Thumb. Someone in your life constantly control your behaviour while telling you it's for your own good? Do they cut off and control access to your money and control what you can and cannot spend it on? Do they constantly threaten you while telling you it's your fault and blaming you for making them do it? Then you may be in an abusive relationship or you may be a citizen of Singapore. Yes. The PAP government abuses Singaporeans while telling us that it is for our own good. But why do Singaporeans accept all this constant abuse and mistreatment? In the last two episodes, I talked about how the PAP rigs the elections to maximise votes. But it's more than just votes which give the PAP such overwhelming control in Singapore. Singaporeans know this. In our recent Citizens' Agenda survey by New Narrative, our respondents identified the number one issue facing Singapore as how the PAP conducts politics in Singapore. So in the next few episodes, I'm going to talk more about the broader context of political control in Singapore, how and why the PAP governs Singapore the way it does. Today, I want to talk about two important factors that enable this control. First, that Singapore is governed by laws and institutions that enable the government to intervene into the most intimate aspects of our private lives. And second, the government actively sends the message that criticizing or opposing the government will lead to retribution. And this creates an environment of fear. Let's take this in turn. When the PAP came to power in 1959, it was a deeply radical socialist party with a mandate to completely transform society. You see, Singapore in the late 1950s was a deeply colonial society. There was significant discrimination against non-Europeans and also massive inequality, where a rich merchant and colonial elite lorded it over the rest of us. So the first chance we got, we elected a left-wing party called the Labour Front to fix all that. And when they didn't do a good enough job, we elected an even more radical socialist party called the People's Action Party to change Singapore even more. Get rid of discrimination. Get rid of inequality. To achieve this, the PAP did two things. First, they embarked on massive socialist programs, expanding socialized welfare, housing, healthcare, and education. 
But to do all of this required massive disruption to people's lives and the PAP leaders were impatient. Rather than take the time to convince their critics of the rightness of their actions or even just listen to their critics, the PAP leaders simply arrested and locked up their political opponents. Between 1959 and 1988, around 2,500 people were arrested by the PAP government and detained without trial under the various clauses of the Internal Security Act. The PAP called them communists or Marxists, but no proof has ever been produced that any of them were ever part of any conspiracy to overthrow the state. I've spoken about this before. You can find a link here. They also changed the law to severely curtail freedom of expression, assembly, freedom of the media, and so on. I'll talk more about this in a future episode. The upshot of all of this is that the PAP were able to implement their policies pretty much by decree, without worrying about such things like due process, public anger, or losing elections. And to be fair, to a very great extent, all this worked because the PAP government presided over the greatest expansion of living standards and opportunity that Singapore has ever seen. When we think of the great success of the PAP, it is the success of a socialist government, not in making Singapore more rich, but in making Singapore more fair. But by the late 1970s, the low-hanging fruit had been plucked. Singapore's living standards had shot up. We had full employment, and the challenges facing Singapore had changed. The PAP was a victim of its own success. And by the mid-1970s, Singapore needed new ideas about how to make the country grow, precisely at a time where the world was being rocked by oil shocks and global recessions. The problem is, the PAP had just spent 20 years locking up anyone who thought differently from them. It had changed the law to make it difficult for anyone to express an opinion different from the PAPs. Just as it needed new, fresh ideas, there was no one left to generate those new ideas. And when the PAP tried to introduce new policies to meet these challenges, including a new economic plan and reforms to the key pillars of housing, education, healthcare and pensions, they were huge disasters. I'll explain all about these in a future episode when I talk about the economy. Today, let's focus on the social-political consequences of these policy failures. One was that Singaporeans pushed back against the government. In 1981, we elected our first non-PAP member of parliament since 1968, Mr. J.B. Jayaratnam, and in 84, we elected a second, Mr. Cham Si Tong. And Lee Kuan Yew was really angry about this. One of his responses was to massively redesign the electoral system to give huge advantages to the PAP. I talked about this in previous episodes. Another was to conclude that he hadn't intervened in society enough. The people of Singapore were letting him down, not the other way around. So he took all those powerful levers which had thus far been used to reform society and make it more fair, and use them instead to further PAP control and deepen its intervention into society. He wanted to make sure PAP rule would never be threatened again. Lee wasn't just running the state. Lee wanted to alter your fate. Another thing he did was to try and optimize society. For example, he started interfering directly with women's bodies. He set up a eugenics board to improve the quality of our genes. He encouraged less well-educated women, who were also overwhelmingly minorities, to sterilize themselves. 
He encouraged highly educated women to marry highly educated men. He openly talked about reintroducing polygamy to allow men with good quality genes to have more children. Lee wasn't just in your room, Lee was in your womb. He also used his increased control to quash the increased dissent that arose. On top of that, the government introduced a massive propaganda program based on Lee's perspective on history. Lee's own autobiography was entitled The Singapore Story. And today, national education is compulsory for all students and absorbing the PAP perspective of history is compulsory. Lee wasn't just in your bed, Lee was in your head. If you like these and want to hear more, please get my new book, Critical Responses to the PAP in Rhyme, 2nd Edition. Since the 1990s, there's been another increasingly important mechanism of control, and that is debt to the government. This grew out of the government's embrace of a core belief called neoliberalism, that when it comes to addressing people's needs, the free market is better than government provision because it helps to regulate costs and increase efficiency. This is not necessarily true, as anyone who's ever ordered anything from Lazada will attest. I'm sure my package will arrive any day now. Now, whether or not it really is better, we won't get into here. The important thing is that the government started to look to market prices to decide how it gave out subsidies. And also, instead of paying things from a central pot made up of all our taxes, it started shifting the burden onto individual savings. These changes fundamentally altered the relationship of Singaporeans to their government. For example, HDB pricing used to be the cost of building something plus a small premium. Then it shifted to the market price for the land minus a discount. But since then, land prices rose sharply and housing costs have risen correspondingly. As a result, people today are hugely in debt to the government. And at the same time, in 1986, the interest rate of your pension fund, CPF, was pegged to bank interest rates, and this made the return from your CPF sink from about 5.56% to 25 to 4%. So what you make on your savings is a lot less, but what you owe the government is a lot more. And until the 1980s, hospital care was nearly free and government clinics were subsidized directly by the government. But massive reforms from 1984 onwards created the system today, which relies so much more on individual savings. Healthcare costs are carefully controlled by the government and means tested, not just in terms of a person's income, but also in terms of your overall wealth. If you own private housing or have access to family support, it is really unlikely that you will qualify for means-tested subsidies. But the consequence, intended or unintended, is that this can drive people to sell their homes or drain their family funds. So the means-testing of health subsidies can push families overall into greater financial dependence on the state. These are just few examples. But what's the result of all these changes? Taxes are lower, but the cost of your housing, healthcare, education and others are much higher. And you feel it directly because you are exposed directly to them. So the net effect psychologically is one of increased dependence on government benevolence. We feel like we need them to treat us kindly or we're in trouble. 
And this changes the nature of our relationship to the government, even if the government don't realize it or intend to misuse that relationship. And you can't escape this. All of Singapore is in wage labor and your CPF is forcibly taken from your salary. You can't live off the land or function in a pure cash economy in Singapore. So you're part of the financial system and there's no escaping government oversight. The state directly houses around 85% of the people in Singapore. It directly and indirectly controls 85% of the land in Singapore. Your CPF is entirely held by the government and they keep changing the rules about withdrawal. Virtually all interactions with the government require your identity card number. And we don't have the right to privacy. The government is exempted from privacy laws. From a lot of laws, actually. So through all these mechanisms, the PAP government is able to control or influence or constrain where you live, who you marry, how many children you have, where those children go to school, what kind of healthcare you receive, how much you pay for that healthcare, how much you pay for your house, how much you pay in taxes, and of course, whether or not to grant you the endless series of permits that you need to go about life in Singapore. And Lee Kuan Yew was very frank about this. I'm accused often of interfering in private lives of citizens. Yes. If I did not, had I not done that, we wouldn't be here today. And government control over our lives has only increased since then. A government-appointed committee can even tell you what your race is for political purposes. You don't get to decide, they do. The Singapore government has an insane amount of power over our lives. And we can't do a thing about it because the only permissible form of genuine protest in Singapore is the vote, which is heavily unfair and where you get punished if you vote the wrong way. I spoke about this in previous episodes. And here's the thing. I don't think the PAP ministers even realize how terrified Singaporeans are of losing their house and their health and their jobs and how this makes most people choose to keep silent for fear of offending someone in power. So when the PAP leaders make these comments about preferential treatment for PAP wards like Lee Kuan Yew did in 2011, or when Lee Hsien Lung said this also in 2011. The answer is that there has to be a distinction because the PAP ward supported the government and the policies which delivered these good things. But between the people who voted and supported the program and the government and the people who didn't, I think if we went and put yours before the PAP constituencies, it would be an injustice. Lee is saying that it is okay to withhold state resources to punish people who don't cooperate with the government, like your housing, your healthcare, your children's education, access and subsidies for which are determined on an individual, not a collective level. So what we hear is the equivalent of this. Nice place. Thank you. You know, this is a rough neighborhood. Bet you'd hate to see something happen to your little key store. The government has the information and ability to make your life miserable if they choose. The government and all public agencies are exempted from the Personal Data Protection Act. They can, and probably have, collected all sorts of data about you, including how often you pick your nose. Also, stop picking your nose when I'm talking to you. Do it some other time, it's disgusting. Anyway, that's all the time we have for today, but next time, 
I'll talk about how Singapore's laws are very broadly written to effectively criminalise all behaviour while giving politicians discretion to selectively charge their opponents, thus allowing them to claim that it is rule of law when it's really the opposite. Hello, this is Grouchy the Malayan Sunbear. Thank you very much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, please like and subscribe and please share with your friends. Also, please help us make more by becoming a member of New Narrative. It's only 52 US dollars a year or 5 US dollars a month. Imagine how much honey you could buy with that. Learn more about us at newnarrative.com slash hello. Thank you very much.